Clay in this episode called EB was left out. Al Swearingen has a uh, extended monologue to himself where he's talking to his Indian head in the box that he's kept since season one. Um, and he's sort of rehashing everything that he knows about the plots of the episode so far and what he's about to do with it. But it got me wondering, no one walks in on Al in this episode. Um, do you have the weird habit of talking to yourself when you think you're alone, sort of? Or like you you talk to yourself and <laughs> you're just trying to like work something out or you talk about something like ridiculously silly to yourself and has anyone ever come in on you as you're talking to yourself and said, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, well, I don't know if I'd call it talking to himself because he was talking to the head in the box and sure. I can relate to that. I, uh, I, uh, I talk to my dog a lot yep. uh, and my dog tends to talk back to me or at least I make his voice. <laughs> so his voice appears. I, I have... I have held conversations with my dog where I am voicing both parts of the the conversation. Mm-hmm. And it is it can be very helpful. <laughs> Although he tends to be sort of uh dismissive towards me. Do you ever um <clears throat> Bill Burr brought up this bit once that I um I appreciate it when comedians bring up something that I feel like I do and I'm I'm concerned no one ever else does, but then a comedian does it, everyone laughs and you go, Oh, it was one of those things that everyone goes through, apparently. Mm. I um mm. <laughs> I always I always have this sort of funny habit of um, I'll think of something like horribly embarrassing and I'll just kind of go like, fuck, <laughs> like I'll just I'll just relive it, but I'll just vocalize like the weirdness of yeah. the, the awkwardness of it. And that that happens quite a bit. And people have always Amy has always been like, what, what do you why are you swearing for no reason? It's like, never mind. I'm just I'm in my own head. Yeah, no, I've definitely done that. It's it's it always comes up at the weirdest it's the most random thing at the most random time, isn't yes, it? Where yeah. it's like you're you're in the middle of just doing making dishes. dinner, yeah, doing yeah, dishes, and all something. of a sudden you think of something you said to like your aunt yep. in 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, and it's just deeply embarrassing for some reason, but that happens happens all the time. I tend it's, it's weird. It's weird that that stuff sticks with you. It is, yeah. It just pops up at that point, and you're still kind of like bothered by it. That's like most of it's like childhood stuff too, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's like for whatever reason, the the idea of impressionable children is ab- absolutely correct. Because like, if if you do something that is mildly embarrassing as a child, it basically breaks you for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get well, you uh, you get older, and you. Uh, stop caring as much i mm. suppose like you just you end up realizing it it's because uh, 99 percent of it is that stuff that you notice but no one else notices you know you live in mm-hmm. that space where yeah. it's like no one else really cares but you sort of remember that you said that for some reason but right, right. no one else no one else uh, matters but i guess that's kind of uh, weirdly thematical thematic to uh, the episode itself which is called eb was left out this is the Something Pretty Podcast. We are breaking down all the Deadwood episodes, and we're going to break down this one. EB was left out after we play the music. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This one is called E.B. Was Left Out. It's episode seven of the second season of Deadwood, directed by Michael Almereda, written by Jody Wirth. In this one, Al finds a secret door that connects the gem to the pioneer. Tolliver disposes of the whore's bodies and schools Joni. It's no picnic, is it, honey? He sneers, running pussy. Utter beats Walcott in the street and is stopped by Bullock. 
Al visits Alma in her rooms and expresses his disgust with the Pinkertons. Bullock visits Alma, who is visibly pregnant. It becomes you, he says. Walcott invites Utter to his room and gives him Wild Bill's last letter. It's the shortest little synopsis that we've had so far. Um, Mm. But this is EB was left out, and I think I mentioned it. This is one of my favorite episodes of the show. I'm glad we're here, and I'm glad we're going to be talking about it. Um, Comes sort of as a uh, linchpin in the second season. With everything that happened in the previous episode, something very expensive, all the uh, action that took place in that one, this is sort of a reconciling with that in the way that the episode and the seasons are going to move forward. Um, So let's see. Where do you uh, where do you want to start with this one, Clay? Uh, what did you What are your general What's your general takeaway of Eb was left out? That's twice you fucking stared at me. I feel you breathing on my neck. Should I exhale out my ass? And I believe you're doing it intentionally. Why? You think I believe you're a fucking cunt? If we fight, it won't be a casual matter. Oh, I see you got your big fucking knife there. And hid somewhere on your persons, you probably got some pussified shooting instrument. But I am good at first impressions, and you are a fucking cunt. And I doubt you fought many men. Maybe even one. Ah! Ah! Uh, I liked it. It was, um... This was one that I, I think it's it's one where if you're paying attention, it's really good. But it, it also... It is a. Uh, it feels like one that's very much a connective tissue kind of episode, mm-hmm. um, where there's not a lot of big, quote unquote, big stuff happening. It's a lot of just sort of uh, moving pieces around, um, but it has a lot of really great scenes in it that I think are are uh, are not to be discounted. Yeah, um, like uh, the. I thought the Charlie. The scene with Charlie and uh, Walcott was really great. <clears throat> all the all the scenes, honestly, mm-hmm. um, and the even the Charlie Charlie's really good in this episode overall. Like he does, he's involved in a, in a few really good scenes. Um, yeah, after not having been around for too often, he kind yeah. of comes back in this one. They've they've been building his friendship with Joni is largely the, yeah. the biggest thing that's been happening with him. But um, uh. <laughs> his 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 fight with Walcott is very good. Cathartic. Um, it's another one of the of the sequences that the show did earlier too, which is kind of a, a thing that Milch does a lot. Is the um, the cathartic scene that leads to bad ramifications from mm. what happens, but it's like it's what you want. But it, as they discuss in the episode and in the meeting that Eb was left out of, um, it's not necessarily the best thing that could happen, or that they should not react to situations this way and stuff like that so it's another one of those so it's it's cathartic to watch even as it causes a lot of the other dominoes to fall in place for good and for bad for for the characters in the show it was also it also had my favorite scene uh which which felt like it came dangerously close to being a i think you should leave sketch yeah when they're when they're having their meeting and they're and they're talking about the cause of the uh, of the of the beating, and Tolliver's like, "Who cares what why he did it? Who care? Who cares if it was because of I don't know murder or say maybe like <laughs> a couple murders? <laughs> <laughs> like they cut to they cut to Al or or, or Seth, and he's like, "What? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. I- We're all trying to find out who did this. Okay, <laughs> the background of the beating ain't the point." No more than the incident's particulars or how offensive, if I knew them, I might find the details personally. 
The Hearst interests require special treatment. We can face up to that like men or get steamrolled by the fucking alternative. Which is what? Which is them pissed off. They ain't getting treated special. Replacing us that don't with those who fucking will. Did he condescend, deputy, to your yelp of fucking pain? Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. I don't care what brought it on. Say it as murder or more than one. George Hurst, chief geologist, don't get convicted of any crime in any court convened by humans. They'll buy the judge, and if they can't, the jury are witnesses. If not, they'll start into killing. What the fuck are we talking about? Why would we want to know? As Al says later in the episode, Al, uh, Cy fucks himself in the ass in this episode um, by revealing a little bit too much and getting a little bit mm-hmm. carried away. Yeah, so it's, it's a big turning point episode. Um, I think this episode is a terrific collection of different scenes with people. Uh, yeah. I think it's one of the more quotable episodes that we've had in a long time. Um, it does this really nifty job of like even the, you know, you could call it a throwaway stuff like EB's. The episode is called EB was left out because EB is left out of the the goings on in it, but it's not even really the main point that he's left out. Like there's no, it's really just kind of a side plot, like a right, like a yeah. unsubstantial side plot. And the other side plot that's in it is Con um, and Leon trying to like rebrand <laughs> their Chinese whorehouse that they have yes. that they're trying to run, and that one's. You know, it, it's it's one of these Deadwood side stories that it's like it doesn't really tie into anything, but it's just a like what else is going on in the camp kind of activity. Mm. It highlights the racism of uh, the camp and stuff like that and the like the difficulties that they're having trying to like establish this Chinese uh, whorehouse and things like that because of the uh, sort of superstitions and like prejudices of the white people in the camp. And mm. it's, it's largely just kind of like a funny storyline that blows up at the end but it doesn't it doesn't build to anything but even even then i don't think that it like distracts from the overall quality of the episode it's almost like a nice little break from everything else that's going on it just sticks you with those two for a couple minutes yeah i actually i i thought the eb thing um what was missing from the eb thing was was a payoff but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to happen in this episode it could happen later down the line but I, I actually felt like it was less of a side plot than it was sort of like a connective tissue to everything because it's basically the whole episode is kind of a bunch of different things that EB is not involved in. Yeah. It's not just the meeting. You know, everybody, anytime he asks a question about what's going on, someone tells him to fuck off. Yes. Yeah. And in ways that make him uh, more and more annoyed. Al, Al tells him to and Al tells him to set up the meeting with Alma. Cy tells him to and Cy comes into the place to talk to or he he's tailing Bullock and he goes in and tells him to fuck off and, and yeah. stuff like that. And he's always he's such a he's such a shit. And he's 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 I I find the way that he's written so great and compelling because they've really gotten down that I that thing where he's like you know the the show we've we've talked about how the dialogue in the show is so is so good because a lot of pe- people are always talking about stuff without talking about it. And they've written EB in such a way where he has a lot of dialogue where he is trying to get information out of people by saying things but w- without asking questions, you know? Yeah. And so, like, 
the uh, and, it, and it always comes out awkward because he's like not good at it. Yeah, he tries and to so, butter people up basically. Yeah, but is not good at it. Yeah, yeah, like the he does it a couple times. I can't remember exactly what he says with with Al, where he's kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, dance dancing around, explicitly asking him about what the meetings are for. Yes. And then when yeah. Seth, the the one that I the one that really was interesting to me was when Seth comes comes to see Alma. And he goes up the stairs, and then he turns. Eb turns to I think it's Tolliver who's in there. Yep. And he and he says like the the kids in there, which you know might be a problem. Then makes like the sex motion with his hands, <laughs> yeah, like finger into a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and Tolliver rolls and, his eyes at him. Yeah, and it's like he's he's doing that because he's he's just really socially awkward. But he's always hoping someone's going to be like, oh well, that's not why he's going up there. He's going up there because actually, you know what I mean? Right. Yep. And he's just such a great little shit of a character. I. I don't know if I can think of a character like him that is as well written as this that I've seen in a very long time. The ball contempt of it. Why not come out five abreast, cavorting and taunting? E.B. was left out. E.B. was left out. Cocksuckers, cunt lickers, make you filthy gestures. Public service was never my primary career. Yeah, I, f- I think the hard part of EB is um, the performance has to be the performance in the writing has to be just on the side of your understanding why everyone sees through him. You know, like there's right. a there's a line where if you don't do it well enough, people will sort of see like they'll be like, why are they sort of being mean to EB? Like, why don't they listen to him? And if you're too obvious with it, it's like he seems like an unrealistic type person to, to be walking right. around. And be, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you have to you have to walk this line where he is pretending to be sort of uh, social and like ingratiating himself with everybody. But you have to you have to get that like it, like he has to be like semi autistic in a sense. Like he doesn't right. he doesn't understand why he can't relate to people and why people don't trust him because he's not good at. Uh, he he doesn't have L skill of being warm and uh, pleasant or not pleasant, but like charming with people. Yeah, he's just not charming, yeah. so that's his greatest downfall. And one of the reviews I was reading was saying that he's the show's greatest tragic character, actually, because of that. Mm. Like he doesn't um, he doesn't recognize his own failures, and you know he's sort of trying trying to do something, but just can't can't get around the fact that he is what he is. Yeah, and he's got he's got this great twisted or misunderstanding misunderstand it a misunderstood sense of of uh decorum in like in the same way where a dog might bring in an animal that it's killed and drop it at your feet and Mm -hmm. and like look at you for 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 uh uh, for a good boy pat (laughs) and 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 is doesn't understand why you're horrified by it you know yeah that's kind of the energy that he brings where he's like he thinks he's he thinks he's being uh, classy and and doing the the correct thing when he puts a plate of steaming kidneys in front of <laughs> in front of the child and then she like freaks out and he's like oh look at how look at how favorably she reacts to the kidneys to the tang to the tang to the, of the tang, fresh yes. kidney <laughs> you know it's like that that sort of like just not understanding what human decorum is yeah. is is so fascinating it's, it's funny because he's so flowery with his language sort of like he uh, yeah he, he seems like he speaks better than he understands which is just kind of the uh the weirdness of eb farnham 
why he was left out. But he's left out of the episode, as Al says later, uh, at least from Al's point of view, because he would be unable to control himself and not use the information that he learned mm, to, to mm. harm himself. Take it for whether or not you believe that that's what Al was actually doing. Um, so, yeah, I... I um, so the reason I really like this episode is because it is... Uh, it's the thing that Deadwood does really well and which results in storylines like the con and the Leon storyline in this one and the racism stuff and sort of the weirdness of the show and how it does its plotting and where storylines go and everything like that is that I, um, I find Deadwood to be like an extremely uh, spiritual show in like a humanistic way. Like I'm not, I'm mm. not particularly religious, but there is a sense of like spirituality and things that, drive humanity forward or you try to figure out where your place is and things like that. And I think that Deadwood grapples with that in a more interesting and like truthful way than a lot of shows do. Um, my absolute favorite quote of Deadwood is Swearingen's conversation with Merrick that he has. Um, it's the pain or damage speech. Yeah. Um, it's even set. It's set up funny where they they clearly wrote that because they had realized that like the building sets were connected <laughs> when they were shooting, and so Al just wanders through and he's like, "Did you realize if I walked through this door, I was in your printing <laughs> press room?" Um, I and Al's speech there, the pain or damage and end the world, despair, fucking beatings. The world ends when you're dead. Until then, you've got more punishment in store. Stand like a man and give some back. Um, I find that. I find it to be an outlook on life that's like, uh, it's reminiscent of the Stoics. And if people have listened to our other uh, podcasts, I like Stoic philosophy and stuff like that. But Marcus Aurelius has similar quotes, which is like, don't feel harmed and you haven't been. Uh, Everything that happens is either endurable or not. If it's endurable, then endure it. Stop complaining. If it's unendurable, then stop complaining. Your destruction will mean its end as well. Um, I find... Modern culture, like in my personal life and on the TV shows that we watch and stuff like that, is like moved away from this sort of self-sufficiency and sort of a a sense of moving on and getting through things. And this episode itself is about getting through things. And it's about Mm -hmm. the idea that like no matter what has happened, there is a new day, like the sun still comes up the next day. Um, the minor issues that you thought were problems are not really problems in the long run or your, your perception of them as problems is holding you back from realizing that there are greater things to be done. Um, I find it a lot in our personal life. We just have these, we have friends who like just going through things that I, I don't consider to be stuff that should be derailing your life and it's derailing mm-hmm. people's lives and stuff like that. And you know, like it gets sad at a point when kids are involved and things and it's just, you, you, I, I feel that people ignore this idea of just life is endless setbacks, sort of. And like the, the getting, you're not promised to not have these setbacks and getting through it and recognizing that is important. And I philosophically just like this episode and I like the way that Milch approaches um, life. And I think that the redemption arc here for everyone in, in the, the, the turns of fate with Tolliver Fox himself, as they say, and it resurrects Al from it because Al is living this of like, just wait for your time. Someone's going to do something. Someone's going to give you a problem and then you give it, give it back to them as he's going to with Sai in this episode. Um, I don't know. I find it not that it doesn't discount uh, sort of like 
bad situations or there can't be problems or things that shouldn't be fixed, but it's a sense of keep plugging, keep going, and nothing can really stop you as long as you just continue to try. And I find it, I find it pleasant. I think that the rest of the episode thematically wraps around that, and I enjoy it. Did you know this fucking walkway connected us? Several of your patrons in different stages of undress have illuminated me. What happened there? Not only was my press disabled, but my office was ransacked and feces mounted in the corner. A message of objection to my handling of Yankton's notice on the claims. Posting rather than publishing. The camp's new schoolteacher, a lovely woman, was so traumatized by what happened that she left. Cy Tolliver. Who didn't even trouble when confronted to deny it? Why ain't you up and running again? I'm in despair. The physical damage is repairable, but the psychic wound may be permanent. You ever been beaten, Merrick? Once, when I thought I had the smallpox, Doc Cochran slapped me in the face. Well, I'm in pain, but no, I'm obviously not dead. And obviously you didn't fucking die when the doc slapped you. No. So including last night, that's three fucking damage incidents that didn't kill you. Pain or damage don't end the world. Or despair or fucking beatings. The world ends when you're dead. Until then, you got more punishment in store. Stand it like a man and give some back. Yeah, I think it's a uh, <clears throat> it's a philosophy that makes sense for Al and it makes sense for 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 the town, especially for someone like Merrick, who, um, you know, I, I don't we don't know anything about him before his entrance into the show, but uh, he doesn't exactly seem like someone who's who has had a lot of uh, um, intense. Hardship. I mean, as 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 the scene goes, he asks him if he's ever endured a beating, and his answer is that the doctor, doctor slapped him, him once. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> I was kind of surprised that that Al didn't say like, "Well, okay, so no." <laughs> but <laughs> he slaps him again. He says, hey, "You right, got another yeah. one." Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think it. I think it's a. It's a. It's a philosophy that that sticks with the show and. Uh, that that fits with the show and is indicative of of the kind of people who were uh living through that period back then where yeah. it's like yeah. you just you know if you not not that not that having your place trashed and and someone shitting on the floor of your of your business <laughs> establishment is something that should just be uh accepted and endured but like you know in in the situation that they're in Unfortunately, I guess that's what it takes to yeah. live in Deadwood and well, to says, live, on, back. live on the edge. Yeah, yeah. The, the unstoic yeah. aspect of it is that he says to give something back instead mm -hmm. of um, just sort of not accept. Or instead, uh, the the vengeance aspect is probably not particularly stoic. But I, sure. I don't even take Al's meaning to be to give it back in equal forms of violence. It's to mm -hmm. one up 
the people who have wronged you. Um, right. Th- this season has been a lot do of a, sort of do a bigger shit. That's right. House. Yeah, just upset uh, Khan's vowel tray uh, quite substantially and just get his, his Y's <laughs> and O's and E's all over the place. He will not be able to complete his wordle. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's I. And a lot of the, a lot of the the episode like it's about you know knowing how to move on and get past stuff and it's also like knowing when to give up the fights that are coming to you mm-hmm. uh walcott and utter give up on their fight at that point um bulk and alma have their thing that they're sort of moving past in this episode trixie is scared of the change that's happening from learning her uh accounting lessons and yeah. al has to talk her into going back at it and everything like that and um Everyone in town knows what happens at the Chez Ami at this point, but has to get past it and overlook it. It's still, it's to what you're saying. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter that the people didn't die, and it doesn't matter that uh, it's not that it doesn't matter that Joni has lost her business and is sort of now in this sort of really bad psychological position where she is forced to sort of turn tricks herself in order to survive. But there's a sense of everyone's still alive things can be fixed here like there, there's yeah. there's, a, there's an ability to stand up against the the tide of what's happening and whether or not whether it's utter beating the shit out of walcott or it's something else that comes out of it and turning the tables on Psy, uh, something can be done yeah yeah i actually my my favorite quote in the episode was uh do not fucking fault them for your own fucking fears of tumbling into something new yep yeah i really like that i think that's that's a that's a pretty pretty good line. That's a uh, Al to Trixie, right? When yeah. Tri- yeah, when Trixie's upset about that, because I think that ties in what we were talking about them uh, previously when he had his first meeting with her. They are he he clearly cares about Trixie, right? Right. And yeah. I was like, do you get the sense? Is does he even? I suppose he does. Like he is sending her over there with the intent of being his eyes and ears in the hardware store to understand, but. I almost feel like it's a minority concern for him as opposed to her improving her standing in life by, by yeah. taking the lessons. You know, it, it's funny because I thought that was, you know, we were talking about the scene with them from the last episode where <clears throat> it was pretty clear that there were two things being talked about in between them. This scene, it felt a lot more one-sided to me where... Al definitely seemed like he had her while he was saying, you know, go back there and be my eyes and ears, whatever. He had more of this uh, hope that she would improve herself underneath what he was saying. I didn't get that as much. And maybe the, maybe the idea was that Trixie being so frustrated reverted back to the thing that she knew before, if that makes sense. Like, because she the way that she was coming at it it didn't it didn't feel like she was uh she had the those multiple layers to what she was talking about it just sounded like that she was uh uh frustrated and then yeah she's sort of scared of the change that's happening I yeah think. yeah 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 I, al is more al is more directly supportive of her and like vocalizes it without metaphor here about like mm-hmm. you you have to go back and you have to you have to do it and improve yourself. Um, and it's a good, it's good, you know, continuing the relationship between those two. It is a, uh, he has a nice look on his face when she leaves and the camera lingers on him for a second. Mm. But yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, Bullock and Alma have to work past. They 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 know that there's a pregnancy, but neither of them acknowledges at this point. There's the they have the continuation of their conversation about whether or not he should leave here, and she's more mm-hmm. direct about don't make me make that decision for you. So it seems like they have. You know, they've reconciled past this a part of not being able to speak to each other. And now Saul is getting the endorsement to be able to become like the leading banking figure with Alma. So things are improving on that front, too. Everything can everything can be reconciled or at least moved past, I guess. I was uh, I was very (laughs) this is not related to that scene, but I was uh, I uh, I loved Johnny's being considerate of uh, Charlie's corns. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and being like, well, I mean, if he's got corns, step on his foot. I can understand it. Why if Buddy's got corns, that might could have touched it off. Yeah, you don't yeah. go stomping on people's feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the 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 stuff with Alma and, and Seth was interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, that, that, did you find that to be a little repetitive? That scene because I, I did. They really say much new there that they hadn't already said previously. Uh, he's well. I mean, he gives. Uh, he allows Saul. He says that he endorses Saul being the banking sure. thing. Yeah. So I think. I guess it's uh, it's remarkably similar, but they have yeah. changed their uh, perspective on each other. They don't end it angry with each other. How are you feeling? Well, thank you. As I hope you are and your family. We're all very well. I feel. Better lately in the afternoons than in the morning. Oh. You find the right time of day to surprise me. Mr. Starr, with whom I met yesterday, was not so fortunate. Was that a morning meeting? I fell ill at its conclusion. Or my falling ill was the conclusion's cause. We discussed formation of a bank. It's an excellent idea. And Saul would be an excellent chief officer. I'm glad of your opinion. And generous on your part, who need not put capital at risk. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the difference is that he now, he has seen firsthand that Alma's pregnant. Yeah. And yep. so that's, that's the, biggest, the biggest change in, uh, in, in those two scenes, but yeah. It becomes you. Um, yeah, I... I <laughs> I'm just. I was looking at the notes of how Trixie's upset about her decimals. <laughs> she, she can't get her decimals down. Um, yeah, I I find I find this to just be an episode filled with great little uh, scenes between the characters, uh, funny conversations, and, and quotable um, stuff. I one of the scenes that I really like and I think is an interesting turnabout is when Al goes to talk to Alma about the Pinkerton plot. Yeah, I like that scene. Uh, he dresses up for her and he tries not yeah. to swear, but he can't, he cannot swear. He likes the fucking Darjeeling uh, tea is the final line of that sequence. Yeah, it's just, um, I, I guess you could say that he is trying to appeal to her, but he's also, it's the first time they've spoken, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And I think so, yeah. Yeah, so he has. he's kind of unsure of what to do and he kind of goes in to impress himself, but he is... Um, her like upright, uh, like upper echelon nobility aspect is obviously very difficult for him to get through. And he he kind of he kind of looks like a little boy when he's sitting in the chair, like he's got his yeah. hair combed and yeah. he's got his nice suit on, and he's talking to Alma about this stuff. But uh, he basically the point of that scene is that he 
reveals to her the Pinkerton plot from Miss Isenhausen and uh, agrees that he will aid her uh, because he, A, hates the Pinkertons and B, uh, would appreciate if she gives him $50,000 for telling him about this. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's a really great scene that shows a lot about who Al is and what he's, who he is. I should say, um, shows a lot about Al and how uh, fluid he is as far as with whom he makes his uh, alliances. Yeah. It's a very, he has, he seems to very much have a, uh, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of, yeah, uh, outlook on everything <clears throat> in a, in a way that's, that makes him just more interesting than, you know, I mean, cause they could have, it could have easily played this the other way where he doubles down on being dastardly yep. and goes, goes along with Isrenhausen's plot and stuff like that. But that's not interesting, you know? I think he's at a really complicated point here because he, in the Alma scene, he makes the point that he's doing this for like the good of the camp. Like her keeping her money there is a good thing for the camp because it stops uh, yeah. Hearst from gaining so much influence in the camp. At the same time, during the meeting, the reason that they can't... So in the meeting, Utter's uh, beating of Walcott is discussed and... Well, it's kind of dawns on people that there's been some Walcott was up to something and has possibly killed people. They end it by not pursuing that, right? Like they end it by not going after Walcott anymore. They sort of buy into Tolliver's argument that Hearst, uh, him being Hearst's man, means that he's kind of a made man and they shouldn't be fucking with him. Mm -hmm. And Seth at that time is given the option about what he wants to do. And Oliphant's good at it, he's, he's fuming inside but he agrees to not do anything at that point. And Al talks about it later saying that he's maturing and he's now making decisions that are in the good of the camp. So it's this interesting mm -hmm. thing of the good of the camp can mean multiple things. It's, it's not always like this clear cut good situation. Like the ideal you would want to live in a world where Walcott is punished for what goes on, but that punishing Walcott will cause more problems for everybody down the road. So Bullock wisely sort of swallows his, pride about it and doesn't do anything mm. but at the same time keeping alma around is good for the thing of the camp and that seems like much more of a like narrative good story like that's the good end of that story is that alma gets to stick around and keep the money in camp so uh i think it just it positions al nicely in the spot where he doing something for the good of the camp can be a very good thing done for good reasons or it can be a, a bad thing done for what you think are the good reasons and i, I like that kind of a um thing it ties into like uh like modern political stories, um, mm. like Hunter Biden's in the news right now, and he's going to get he's going to get some minor tax charges or something, but he's not going to be charged with possession of the gun or whatever he had. Oh, sure, because he's a fucking idiot. And so, but it's like that. You're who you're, among us, Wes? You're, who among and us? And who's the who's the was it the Patriots player who went to like a airport with like a artillery package or something? It's like did that like just happen? Yeah, it was their cornerback. Really, oh, I, right? I missed that one. He, he had like multiple loaded handguns in his carry-on bag. <laughs> I get worried carrying a bottle of water into the fucking yeah, airport I know, line, right? Yeah, <laughs> I have I have a banner that I bring with me for uh, uh, conventions. Yep. That uh, I I always feel like a like a terrorist sneaking on to the plane because you're yeah. only supposed to have one carry on, but I have to I sneak. <laughs> I'm not going to check that thing, so I I, I weasel Get it to. onto the plane, and I always I always feel like 
you know, I've got a bag full of cocaine or something. Yeah, and that fat guy other just people, starts going through your, your luggage at the end of the, the little spinny rack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Other people just, you know, roll up to the airport with a bag <laughs> full of guns. <laughs> guns. And then have the, the, how I thought this is America. But the, 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 to, the reason I brought up Biden is that it's like it's one of those things of like the good option does not happen. Right. Like, and so it's like you, 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 people make a decision for one reason or another where it's like Biden, that Hunter Biden will not face what a normal person will face because it's like this political machinations that are going around uh, on around it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's that kind of a, a thing with Deadwood and Al. It's sorting out the, you can't always live in the best case scenario, I guess. You have to, you have to deal with the stuff as it comes up. Yeah. That's it's it sucks. A That's lot. life. But then you yeah. you struggle on, right? You mm-hmm. you don't get hung up on it. You don't go on Twitter and tweet about it. You move on, and things will you'll forget about it in two days. <laughs> That's, That's the downside or the upside, I suppose. Um, so what else? Any other scenes that you enjoy in this one, or any sequences well, that you thought were good? I wanted to talk about the the Charlie and Walcott stuff a bit. Yeah, um, because I thought that was. The way that that played out, I found was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I wasn't like expecting them to fight again, but oh, the I second was, scene, yeah, well, yeah. just like the whole the whole thing with them. First of all, I find it, I find it interesting that they brought Dillahunt into the Wild Bill stuff, seeing as he plays the guy who shoots him. Yep, yep. Which is I is a little bit strange, and I mean maybe on purpose. I like maybe they're trying to say something i don't know but um one of, one of the behind the scenes things of that is that they they knew early on ever since they had wild bill's letter right which is in the first season i think it's revealed mm-hmm. that that letter exists the the letter is a historical reality that they actually oh. there actually is a letter uh that he mm-hmm. wrote to his wife and so milch and the writers were thinking how are we going to get this to a point where the letter can become delivered to its owner? We know it's out there, but we have to find a way that oh, it can sure. actually get to his wife. What a weird detail to focus on. Yeah, they, they have a sort of a strange, um, some things that they really think are like necessary to get done to stick to historical reality. But this is the way that they chose to do it, which is to have uh, the letter used to convince Utter to go to talk to Walcott and Walcott using it as leverage to try to figure out what Charlie Utter knows and what he's going to do about it. And this is a result of it. Prudence dictates my requiring in return your account of what Miss Stubbs told you. The prudentest thing you can do is not name that girl again with me in the fucking room. It was she... This nameless she who set you upon me. Agnes, darling, if such should be, we never meet again. While firing my last shot, I will gently breathe the name of my wife, Agnes. And with wishes even for my enemies, I will make the plunge and try to swim to the other shore. J.B. Hickok. Wild Bill. You keep this shit up, you're going to earn a trip out the fucking window. I am simply asking confirmation of what you were told and by whom. And I'm promising I'll sooner blow off your fucking head and take the fucking letter from your corpse and confide any fucking particulars to me, to any fucking one, when I give my word I wouldn't. 
Yeah, that was the most interesting part was was how it played out in that second scene where Walcott just wanted to know that Charlie wasn't... Charlie A might not have known everything that had gone on, or at least the specific... No, because she told him everything. Yeah. Well, Walcott Um, asks him, what did she say to you? Like, what do you you know about this? Yeah. So I think that Walcott does know that Utter knows what he's done. Yeah, it's but it's and it's the the fact that that Walcott also knows that Charlie is not going to tell anybody about it. Yep. Um I that that's what I found so fascinating because it's it's such a strange like the idea that Walcott kind of accepted this ass kicking only on the condition that he knew that that was essentially where it was going to end. Yep as far is is very interesting to me he has the oh, the first scene you see of walcott in this one is he's shaving and he holds the razor up to his throat he's mm. uh walcott's conflicted about what he is and he I, I i would make the argument that walcott thinks that he deserves what happens to him in this episode mm-hmm. from utter uh he does not fight back and i think it's also further proof of what we were talking about last time which is that hearst does not know what walcott is up to um and so that's why Walcott is so desperate to control the narrative here and not let it get out of hand. And if he knows that Charlie is not going to tell anybody, then he's in a better place than if he if Charlie were to start telling people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Wal- Walcott continues to be a, a really interesting character, like a very slow burn of a character. Um, that I'm curious to see how he progresses because uh, I feel like. I feel like he has to have some sort of explosion at some point, even though I guess technically the last episode I did, but I mean like in a larger, a larger sense, like there, there needs to be a, some sort of <clears throat> grand payoff to, to his, uh, bottling of everything. Yep. Um, and I'm curious to see, see what they do with that. Yeah. I, I, um, I really like the second scene. I also like the Charlie uh, and Walcott scene. It, it is like the through line of the episode. Obviously, like everything is is off, built mm. off of the spine of that story. But um, I like their opening scene with "Shall I exhale out my ass?" <laughs> and Charlie trying to get him <laughs> irritated enough where he'll do something so he can fight him. That's um, my. That's one of my favorite details in this show. And I mean, they do it in all sorts of like old western stuff where it's like the the. <laughs> The perceived slight invented by the person who's looking for a fight yep. is is enough to warrant you know a gunfight or an ass kicking. Yep. Where I mean, it's the- like you dropped your quarter on top of my penny, <laughs> sir. It's like what the fuck are you talking about? But it goes into uh, you know the the calling him a cunt is enough to get into a knife fight in this universe. You know, like right. the, the calling yeah. him a cunt is enough to go out there and like I'm going to stab you. Um, I see I you just got think your about- big fucking knife there. <laughs> I just think about a scene like that, and I think about something like that trying to play out in the real world. Yeah, where it's like two guys at the Dunkin' Donuts line, and then one of them is just like barking at the guy in front of him that he's stepping on his feet. Yeah, like I, I can't imagine anybody in there would would be would they would think that guy was insane. Although, I mean. I, I, there's probably enough fights at Dunkin' Donuts around here that I'm probably wrong. People probably get into stupid fights for just as stupid reasons. Now. Yeah, yeah, they, I'm sure they do. And it's the um, it's the move away from an honor culture, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. uh, in this world, 
the only thing that you have to enforce yourself is your yourself. It's kind of like prison rules, right? It's like you have right, to yeah. you have to protect yourself and you have to be you you play the honor game because honor is your reputation at stake and if you don't protect it people are just going to sort of take advantage of you. Um over here where we live it's more of the um you know there's there's good and bad trade-offs to it like it's we 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 give that away to the police now. We say like the state has to take care of us. The state has to be responsible um, for mm-hmm. dealing with situations like this. And, you know, that has its own drawbacks, obviously, like Uvalde, Texas and stuff like that. Like the uh, the state mm-hmm. isn't always going to protect you, unfortunately. Right, right. And so it's like it's this weird balancing act of between the two. Like you wouldn't want to live in the, the Deadwood world of like if you accidentally step on someone's corns, they can just go to fucking town on you in the, in the thoroughfare. Yeah. But um, here, there's also, I have my own little fantasies about like, if only I lived, if I had this sort of like outlook and it was just like, don't fucking say some bullshit to me, you son of a bitch, and <laughs> go at it in the streets. I, you, I would, bite your th- you bite your thumb at me, sir? <laughs> yes, I, I bite like, my thumb at you. I'd end up like Saul, just saying like, if we go at it, you're going to have to work alone as I, con- as I convalesce. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately but maybe it would motivate just, me to go to the gym i just i just imagine seeing charlie utter behind some like frat guy at dunkin donuts <laughs> on like a early saturday and the guy being like pal what about my flip-flops swim trunks <laughs> and 15 year old uh union bay sweatshirt <laughs> says i'm looking for a fight right now Charlie's just taking all the splendor out of the thing. I believe you're doing it intentionally. <laughs> I believe you're a fucking cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts would be a little bit, little bit more lively, I think. Charlie Charlie Utter in the 21st century is is a great is a great comedy yeah. sketch. Right? <laughs> hey, uh, Dayton Colley's really good in this role. He's he's you know, great. We've he's been really really good. We've been teasing people uh, uh, people in the Discord. Um, a few people new to the show have not been too enamored with Charlie, which is which is fair. I don't I don't particularly mind. It's just that um, I think he's such a great performance and a great. Uh, who is the moral center of the show, Doc Cochran or Charlie? Um, I've hmm. My first instinct is the is Doc only because he seems to be the one who's the most uh, unhappy with the way people do things. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit more I impotent think, than Charlie is the difference. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie's more of a, of a, Charlie's more loyal, you know? Yeah. He, he has loyalties and the doc is just sort of like an independent contractor who is kind of looking at everything semi-objectively or trying to at least. Yeah, and, Cochran's more uh, I mean, philosopher too. Like yeah, he talks yeah. about it, but he doesn't particularly. He doesn't. The most he'll do is stand up to people. Like he stands up to Al in the first season, and he he won't do what Al tells him to do. But he won't. He doesn't get physically into things in the way that Charlie does. Yeah, Cochran. Cochran feels the most like a modern person who's been transported back yeah, to that yeah, time period because yeah. his constant yeah. his constant state of being is this is all fucking insane. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Please don't make me cut you open, Al. <laughs> I'm going to stick this implement up your urethra, Al. <laughs> I pray to God. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I, I would fantasize about being Charlie, I guess is my takeaway. Like Charlie is the kind of simple and yeah, kind of simple and just fuck shit up. And a a mailman. (laughs) Balding. (laughs) Great teeth though. That's the only, that's the one thing about Charlie is I can't stop noticing for as shabby as the rest of him looks, his teeth are too nice. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You can't work in Hollywood with horrible fucked up teeth. He's not. They should give him a pair of Ferengi teeth and just slap him on there. Have Ever? you noticed? Have you noticed older actors now? Well, not necessarily just older actors, but I've been I've started to notice um, uh, veneer mouth in yeah. a lot of a lot of actors where yeah. you can really tell. I think I think we're going to notice it when we get to uh, the Deadwood movie because having been I think I mentioned this before having watching the show when I went to see uh, uh, John Wick four yeah all I could hear was the that that undertone whistle of uh, <laughs> of, of, of Mc, McShane's teeth. yeah Ian McShane's <laughs> brand new teeth yeah yeah that um. It probably will. I, I wonder if they wear them in the movie or if that would be too distracting or something. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie in forever. Um, but it'll be it'll definitely be interesting to see how things change to that point. I did really love... Uh, I, I like the scene... <coughs> excuse me. I thought the head in the box thing was so strange. Mm-hmm. Because, first of all, I wasn't totally sure what the hell he was talking about when he was talking to it. Yep. And then... The whole point of bringing it out was to pretend that he had a package to send off, yes. so he could talk to Charlie. Yep, it's just a, it's a long way to go for that particular ham sandwich. I think. <laughs> like, is this but the I first really time did. the head? Is this the first conversation he's had with the head? I think so. Okay, it becomes a running thing that he does. Oh, okay, yeah. jeez, that thing must be disgusting in there. Yeah, hopefully it's it's like a raisin. It's dried out to the point where it just is. You know, you can just yeah. do whatever is, you want. Is he with keeping it, it in the? the woos meat oh, locker yeah, or something meat locker yeah he says but he's, I, he says I, he's got shelf space in the in that scene so i don't know that's true but i i thought it i thought it very very funny that he went through all of that rigmarole just to yep. talk to charlie when yep. he could have probably just you know <laughs> gone over and talked to him um but i did i did like that scene where it does show that even al there are some people who are who are are still above Al's uh, ability to to charm and, and talk his way into information. Yeah, he overplays his hand in that one. Yes, he, he does. T- he tells a lie that Charlie sees through, which is that um, Joni told Al what happened there, and Charlie yeah. knows that that's not the case. Anyways, as far as this morning in the thoroughfare, I'd have done the same fucking thing. I'm done fucking talking about it. Don't care who he works for, thinks he can get away with that. You give that cocksucker what he fucking needed. Sick fucking bastard. I knew when I saw the wagon, for Christ's sake. Poor fucking girl. Tolliver's whore. Never seen a girl so distraught. Wouldn't you be? Being a man, you believe you've seen the equal? No, not to that. She told me to. She told you what? What she saw. She didn't see fucking nothing. No, I don't mean see in the sense of seeing. Get the fuck away from me. 
I don't know if she, like would anybody believe that? I don't think she's ever even. No, it was a it's a bad lie. I think you. Yeah. I think you. It's an interesting episode because Al and Sai fucks himself up better. Uh, but Al certainly makes a mistake there, whether or not he's pushing too hard for something. But uh, you could argue both of them. Sai in particular acts. I don't know if he acts out of character. He's getting desperate because he can't lose Walcott. Like, so he, he right. sort of, the desperation makes sense for him, but he, he's not the cool and collected Cy Tolliver that we've seen so far to this point. Um, he's, he's losing his handle on things. Yeah. I like the, um, a very small scene that's not really uh, meaningful to the episode itself, but is another wonderful thing is uh, Jane and Charlie's scene here. Oh, Jane yeah. Returns. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I like that one a lot. I liked her. <laughs> I liked her. Uh, <laughs> It was real uh, Homer Simpson five day four day weekend vibes when when yeah. she's <laughs> like Tuesday. I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry I completely missed Tuesday and he's like it's Thursday and she's like oh okay great I got five <laughs> days so I got to deal with that <laughs> what's that to you only I got packages couldn't be halfway by now to Cheyenne where is it fucking Tuesday already. It's fucking Thursday, Jane. So I got five days left before I gotta leave. No. Oh, I see. Well, you look your usual piece of shit. Not you, Jane. You look like dew on fucking roses. <laughs> It's such a unique relationship between those two at this point, too. Like, this is clearly Jane at the end of her rope where she's yeah. missing work and she got so drunk and someone kicked the shit out of her that she doesn't even know what happened to her, but she is carrying the battle scars of it. Um, and she's truly she's, apologetic to Charlie here at the end of it where she keeps saying that she's sorry and Charlie says to go get cleaned up. Yeah, there's also something kind of, like, weird and, I don't know, trippy about her describing she woke up as the sun was either going down or coming up and she couldn't tell which one it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's really, uh, what's the word? Disorienting. Yeah. But yeah. obviously she knew which one it was cause the sun, it got dark afterwards. Yeah. She so. says, she says it got fucking dark. Yeah. <laughs> she figured it out. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, she's, uh, I think the dialogue is beautifully written there. Uh, yeah. that she's, she's in a place where she doesn't know, you know, metaphorically, dusk and dawn represent life or birth and death too. At that point, you don't, you don't know if you're being reborn or if this is the end of things for you. And mm -hmm. her talk with Charlie at least seems to imply that she is looking towards getting cleaned up. And her Nadir has passed. Um, she hasn't been too involved in this season, really. They haven't even yeah, focused on her been, drinking. Yeah, she's been absent for most of it. She yep. just kind of she pops in here and there for a couple scenes, but that's about it. Yep. Um, it's the it's the nature of a show like this that I find. Uh, we I think we talked a little bit about this kind of thing last episode, but it's it's the nature of this show which is probably somewhat freeing, but also somewhat frustrating as 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 a writer, where you kind of can go in any direction you want, um, but what that means is that there are just big sections where some characters just don't show up. Like yeah. if you, it's like, if you've got nothing for Jane to do, there's no reason to 
keep cutting to her tying herself to her horse, you know? Yeah, we're sitting in the, the bar. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm always right, a little yeah. bit surprised you don't just see them in the background of bars and stuff like that. Like, Jane sitting in the number 10 would almost make sense, although maybe it's too painful for her because Bill was killed there. She doesn't yeah. But Yeah, I... I, I um. I agree. There is a, a freedom, and the, the the cast is just enormous at this point, and it's hard to maneuver everybody yeah, that's into the thing. position. They just keep adding characters, and yeah. uh, you know, we, as we were talking about last episode, that is sort of an interesting nature of the show because it is such a transient town, and like yes, people and are anybody and can come and go. You know, um, but yeah, there's just there's so many people, which, which gives you a lot of latitude as far as how things can play out. Um, but I'm sure it was difficult at times to wrangle. Yeah. And just the, the sort of wrap up of it is uh, Al has sort of found himself in this one. It's the first time he's been up and about uh, for a while. He walks around the town. He has a funny conversation where, where EB, he walks into Evie's hotel and Evie's like, Al, is that a new suit? And he says, no. And then he says, maybe it's just your <laughs> ruddy complexion that brings out the design or something like that. Uh, but Al is sort of walk, walking around. He talks to Charlie. He's walking around at night in the camp and stuff like that. Uh, he comes back into the gym. And I really like the final conversation he has with – this is a great – It's. It's nice to have Al back and communicating because he has the talking to the Indian scene, which is that he he recaps everything that has been going on with Sai to that point, and mm-hmm. like and is explaining to the head uh, how this is going to be his ability to come back on top of it. And then he also talks to um, Dan and Johnny at the end. Well, another great intro scene, which is that Johnny's like, "You still got that box, Al?" He's like, "Nothing gets past <laughs> you, Johnny." <laughs> well, you know, I I. Uh... I, I was watching the previously on um, because it, it occurred to me that so much stuff is going on that I should probably just start watching those because yep. it kind of catches you up. And they do that thing that uh, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer would, would do in later seasons where if there was something specific they call out in that previously on from like two seasons ago, you know that, oh, okay, some, that person's coming back or something yep. like that. And so this one, the first thing they show is... Uh, him talking about the the beheading of the the Indian, right? And I and I and I started thinking, I was like, man, what is? How is that going to come back? Are they going to? Is there going to be a raid or something? No, he's just going to talk to the severed head yeah. in the box for yep. a couple minutes. <laughs> Remind you that he's got it. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it's another, it's another reason why the show does not, um. You know, it's d- discussing it, as we talked about before, discussing it is not like talking about Star Trek, interestingly, which is like, you know, Star Trek takes place in this world where we could probably, you know, if you don't buy into it, there's a lot of like bullshit you, that you could get hung up on, you know, like you, sure, the, the science or the world of Star Trek does not make sense unless you completely buy into it. Deadwood is kind of the same in that when I see criticisms of it, it's, it, a lot of it, in my opinion, stems from the the sense that this is a real place. And like Deadwood is just a very theatrical, philosophical show. And it's not, you know, you're like we're kind of joking about like, the, I bet the head stinks and stuff like that. But this is really, it's more like it's like, you think of Shakespeare, uh, like right. the skull, yeah. like holding the skull and stuff like that. It's a... 
it's more metaphorical and less literal in what it chooses to do. So right. Al talking to the head has like big theater energy to it. And in the theater stuff like that, you never you you treat theater a little bit differently than the movies for some reason. Like you accept that theater is not really reality in a lot of ways. Yeah. Where the movies you don't. And I Deadwood as a TV show is just not focused. It's not the wire. You know, it's not like you're right. accurately portraying what's going yeah. on in this place. Yeah, and you know, I think with anything, there's a certain I think you have to kind of decide if that kind of stuff is going to hang you up on it. Yep. Cuz yep. there's no reason that it needs to be real like why it can't be more theatrical in that way. But, you know, there are plenty of people who for whatever reason need to harp on the absolute scientific realism of everything that happens and yeah like, are, are you really is this worth your time i feel like you're <laughs> you this mean. is a forest forest for the trees situation here where you know it doesn't it doesn't matter how fast how fast that he actually threw that pitch what matters is that you know the, the guy hit it or missed yes, it. you know the, the, where the where he ended up on base and stuff like that yeah. I, I think that the, the problem with it is that you're distracting yourself from what the show is actually doing or trying right. to do with it. And yeah. that, that's the downside. It's like some shows are certainly built around the reality of it. And like, um, like mysteries are kind of that way. Like if your mystery is not like structurally based in a kind of reality, when you get to the conclusion, you're like, fuck this show. Like how, how dare right. it do that to me? I thought this was a mystery. Um, th- this is a little bit different. It's just, it's not the same, but to the, did you want to say something? Sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, you know, th- that's an interesting uh, um, example to use because uh, <clears throat> did you see Glass Onion? Uh, the, knife, the Knives Out follow-up? Oh, no, I didn't. No, sorry. So uh, one of the things that people got really, some people got really mad about is the way that they structure that movie, which is sort of they they play out this whole sequence and then halfway through the movie, they kind of jump back and show you what happened to lead up to it, which puts an entirely new spin on everything you saw. Right, yeah. And a lot of people think that it was kind of like cheating and, and takes away from the idea of a mystery because a, a mystery, in order for a, a, a mystery to be valid, you need to have the pieces theoretically that you could solve it if you just knew what you were supposed to be looking for. Right, yeah. The pieces, the clues you, have to be there for you to be able to to feel like you earned the understanding of it. Right, which, you know... I've watched enough Giallo movies to know that's bullshit. So yeah. <laughs> you read Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock, there are no clues yeah. in Sherlock Holmes until he just reveals at the end what happened. Right. They it. could be fucking anything. There were yeah. no clues in Sherlock Holmes until Doyle got to the end of the story yes. and decided he needed to put him in. Yeah. You know, it's all like it's all like I've been watching uh, a lot of Columbo lately, and Columbo is structured differently than the the usual mystery where you see the murder and who does the murder. At the beginning, and it's uh, I saw someone d- describe it not as a who done it, but a how catch him. Yeah, you, yeah, so you mean you do? So at Columbo, you see the murderer. You know everything at the start. Yes, of the you, you know you know everything. You know you know who the murderer is. You know who, who and how they killed the person. And then the store, the fun of the story is seeing how Columbo ends up catching them. And it's the same kind of bullshit though, where you get to the end and it's it the way that he catches them ends up being clever, but it's like completely preposterous. Yeah, you know, if if you really, it's not like it's not like they laid out necessarily all these pieces for him to catch him. It usually comes down to like, and that's why you didn't count on dropping a button on the floor when you left. And it's like, all right, well, whatever. This would be a good Columbo episode. Uh, just one more thing, Mister Tolliver. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I had never watched Columbo before. 
I always when I was younger, I always thought it was really boring and yes. stupid. It's my one, grandparents it's become, liked Columbo, so it was like yeah. it had that kind of a thing going for it. It has become one of my favorite shows. Yeah, it's, it's a good idea. It's so great. It's so great. Uh, just getting back into this, uh, did Al at the end with Dan and uh, Johnny. Just he has a conversation that ties into his uh, early statement to Merrick about the pain of despair thing. He says, "What happened to Tolliver illustrates till the race is fucking finished. Never mark the fucking wager paid." So it's just kind of that uh, the closing button on that idea of until you know life goes on. The the game is over when you're dead, basically, and, mm-hmm. and don't 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 uh, think that you need to pay. Uh, you need to pay out before that happens. Um, wakes up the morning in bed with fucking Hearst Combine, knowing he's got us by the balls. Whatever sick fucking business that geologist has transacted, you can bet he had his wrists in it up. Tolliver. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's it, I guess. Any other scenes in this one? I'm looking through quickly. I think we've talked about everything. Mm. Um, I feel, man, I feel so bad. I really like Joni and I feel so bad for her. Yeah. She's, she's, I, that final shot of her is really bad. That were like, yeah. hard to, to see. And her propositioning the bartender and even the bartender who does want to sleep with her is like, this how is, about I just give you the money? Yeah, this is, he gives her the hundred back that she gave him his interest on yeah. his loan to her. Yeah. And, but she's, um, and size flailing too. The ending scene with him and her is he's he's trying like as you know, Sai yeah. got what he wanted. The Shazami is gone at this point, and he's trying to bring everyone back into the fold in that way that he wants to control things. Um, you know, it ties in nicely with like um, Sai's personality of wanting everyone to be subservient to him and to sort of like corral everyone and have everyone under his wings is. Similar to how he transact, how he's trying to do this plot, right? Which is what Al talks about, which is that he's like, her, uh, Al is saying to the Indian head that Tolliver wanted to control the circle of information because he wants to like be the person who knows everything and to not, if he, he knows that if the secret gets out, it compromises his position. And I, I just thought it was yeah. interesting that size person, interpersonal relationships mimics how he's choosing to handle the Hearst plot. Uh, it's the same thing. So. I thought that was a, a nice touch to have them be so similar to each other. Um, I like Al's uh, quote to E.B. after he sees Alma. She goes, she, she's some fuck, E.B. <laughs> tell him. E.B. just can't get any information about what's going on. Uh, I didn't get this joke. When Al's talking to Trixie, uh, Trixie says, I'm done at that hardware store with their fucking harping and badgering. And Al says, who's harping? The Jew? And Trixie says, are you making a fucking pun? What's the what's the pun? Oh, I think I actually know that. There is such a thing. Hold on. Let me Google this so I don't uh, sound like a uh, And then Al just says, I'm asking a fucking question. And she says, the Jew. Before I know. Uh, okay, yes. Um, there is a, there is a uh, musical instrument that is uh, known as a Jew's harp. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yes, it's 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 if you if you look it up, if you Google it, you, you'll probably recognize it. It's like you put it in your mouth. It's one of those things like you put up your mouth and you flick this little piece of metal. And it makes like oh. a boring, boring, oh, okay. boring. Yeah. 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 OK. Uh, also known as the jaw harp, <laughs> which is the uh, the PG rating of Jews harp. Well, it's funny because it's a, the Jews harp, also known as a jaw harp, a juice harp. Oh, or a mouth harp. That's it's one the, of those ones where that's it's what like Wu says he calls it a juice harp. Yeah, 
Well, it's it's one of those things that's funny. Is it like, is it a juice harp? And then people just like, oh, yeah. No, yeah. I can make that more awful yeah. sounding. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. What, is it, what does it say here? Uh, history. Earliest depiction is a Chinese drawing. Huh. Interesting. Well, okay, so yeah, that makes it's sense. That thing that goes like, bam, 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 yeah, you kind of associate with uh, with uh, Appalachia. It seems yes. more like it's that kind of a thing. One of the other names seems to be the Ozark harp. Yeah, that makes sense. That's funny. Then I like that joke. I did not get that joke at all. But who's harping the Jew? Are you making a fucking pun? Yeah, um, very, very interesting. <laughs> just uh, it's, uh, an episode full of great little scenes. I like Trixie talking to Saul and Bullock, and she's like. She tells Bullock that like we'll get along as you re- as long as you recognize that Moses has done the heavy lifting with the tablets and whatnot. <laughs> and he just says, "Sure." Uh, I really enjoy that scene. Just coming back at him. And what what does she say to tread lightly those who who live in hope of pussy? <laughs> so says, "Do you have any guidance for me?" She says, "Tread lightly who lives in hope of pussy," which is a good line too. Uh, anything else or anything else that we missed that you would want to mention? No, I think that's it. I think that's pretty much everything. That's it. So EB was left out. I really enjoyed this episode. It's one of my favorites. Um, I like the quotes in it. I like the the idea of it. I do really uh, tremendously appreciate and get along with this idea of continuing on. I uh, One thing I will say is that I think you could probably cast a hundred different actors in most of these parts. Yep. But I do not think you could cast anyone else to play EB. Yep. Sanderson just has, he's just got whatever that, whatever is necessary for that level of like pathetic sleaziness. Yeah. I just, I I can't imagine anybody else playing that part. Yeah. No, he fits it um, well. He just sort of lives in that character. Um, And you, do you. Do you feel bad for EB at all? Uh, no. I wouldn't be surprised if I do eventually, but yeah. I don't currently. I'm because, always... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, because he is just so conniving, you know, he, he... I don't find anything... I think EB, EB is left out is a great title, because that sort of sums up his entire thing. Yeah. I feel like he's just, his biggest fear is being left out. Yes. And so he he's wants a follower, to, as he says. Yeah, yeah. He's a follower and he wants to, to be in, in, in on the gag. And when he's not, you know, it makes him, it's just not a, it's not an appealing personality trait. Yeah. I don't think he's, he's likable at all. And I think the show actually uh, pushes it that direction. When it, whenever you're in a position to kind of feel bad for him, the show will trot out Richardson and he'll be cruel to yeah. Richardson for no reason. Yes. And you're like, all right, yeah. well, fuck him then. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing redeemable. And because, like, even in, in so many situations, he could be less of a shithead. But the reason he's being such a shithead is because he thinks it will make him seem cool to the other shitheads. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like any time he does something dastardly or underhanded or greedy, he's not doing it because he wants to he's doing it because he thinks oh well al will think i'm brilliant because i i I made him go up to twenty thousand or whatever you know it's 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 all there's there's not anything honest about him yeah yeah he is a good he's a good performance um 
I guess it was just uh, yeah. I just I, I really enjoy this episode. I think it's I think it's very interesting. Um, I think all the performances are great. I think the dialogue is great. I think that its ideas are wonderful and uh, inspirational. Um, do you have any final thoughts about it? Or I guess that uh, we can you can have your final thoughts, and then my question to you would just be. Uh, from your previous rewatch, are we, we must be past the point that you've seen in this show. You know, I think not actually because the 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 Walcott and Charlie stuff seemed vaguely familiar. Yep. So I think we're coming up on it, but I am not a hundred percent. Does Hearst show up in the season? The very final episode of the season. Did I make it? Maybe I watched the whole second season. I can't. I honestly can't remember. Okay. So, uh, any final thoughts? And then, I guess, would have you been surprised in this rewatch by any character who's who's been your most surprising for good or bad character from your rewatch and what you remember? Um, I mean, I just love EB. I think he's yep. a, he's an amazing character, uh, and I think I think uh, you know my first watch through a lot of it, I was kind of like while I was doing other stuff while I was working, so yep. I didn't quite have the. Uh, it didn't quite have the full attention that I do now. And I think, I think, uh, powers booth is doing really great work. Yeah. Size, size, my, size, probably my choice. He's, he's, yeah, yeah. Cause he's like, he's, he's really walking a fine line with his performance and what they're asking him to do and, and, and the kind of character he's playing. Um, that is very much, <laughs> you could, if you're not paying attention, you just go, oh yeah, no, that's the power powers booth character. He does that in yeah. everything he's in. Like yeah. he's he's the it this is essentially the same character he plays in Tombstone, right? It's like, well, no. He's and I think this episode is a really good example of that where the way that he runs the meeting and uh uh and the way that he talks to 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 Joni and stuff. There's a lot more going on there that's requires a little bit more attention. Yeah, I I like his um I think he's just he's done a good job of uh he's it's one of these, like he the the performance is also so memorable in a strange way it's kind of yeah. like um you know it's kind of like uh there's a very strange thing but like the the dark knight rises right like the only thing that matters in that movie is that Hardy's performance as Bane is so memorable for some reason yeah. that it's like oh yeah. it's actually kind of cool Right. Everything else can fall apart around it. Like and you, you, you might not even like like what Bane is or does in that movie, but the performance is so unique. Uh, there's something about Booth's performance as Tolliver, just the way that he like talks and the, the way that yeah. he says his lines is so memorable and uh, distinctive to me. Just Johnny Stubbs, <laughs> he's always chomping <laughs> on a cigar, and just um, he has he has that great line in this one where Leon and Khan are trying to figure out how to market the. Uh, Chinese prostitutes, and he's just like, he's like the China, he's like the Chinese woman's vagina's got a python like Crip Boys, and it's just, it's really, I don't know, he's just like sublime in this role. It, it could have easily just been. There's this a version of Psy which is too cigar chomping over the top, and it would ruin everything. And, and Booth yeah. just landed in this sweet spot for him. Yeah, he's got a he's got a simmer to him. Yeah, yeah. That that I, I don't think a lot of other people might have. That's it. Yeah. He's really good. We're done with EB was left out. That is Oh, sorry. Good. The one thing I did I didn't mention this last episode, but mm-hmm. uh I I I had been watching some older uh John Ford westerns lately and I had watched um The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Yep. 
and uh, which is great, despite John Wayne. And one of the one of the key things that happens towards the end of that movie is uh, Liberty Valance's guys go in and bust up the printing press. Yep. And so I was, I immediately was like, is this? Oh, is Deadwood referencing this, or is mm-hmm. I mean, it's just obviously something that makes sense to do given the situation. But it seems specific enough that I, I could, I couldn't help but wonder if that was a reference. I wonder it could or an inspiration. Yeah, an inspiration to it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it's hard to tell because there's not much else you can do to Merrick, you know. And thematically, it right, makes sense right. that it's like you're you're destroying. An attack on that is an attack on the idea of a like democratic free speech with with Hearst yeah. and Tolliver taking over. You're losing that angle. So, have you ever heard the song? You know the song, "The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance." Yes. Yeah. Did you know that didn't come out? That was not in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's just a it's a coincidence, or is it? A, no. Well, so it's a Gene Pitney song written yeah. by Bert, written by Burt Bacharach. Sure. And apparently, the day they went in to record it, they they found out the movie had been released. <laughs> And so they released the song after the movie came out, and I think it was still like a like a bit of a hit. But it's like I I put the movie on expecting to hear that song over the credits, and it's nowhere in the film. And uh, I guess one of the reasons why that's probably good is because essentially the entire plot of the movie is explained in the song, including like the twist of that movie. Yep. Uh, so it was probably a good idea they didn't do it, but. <laughs> That's it. We're done with EB was left out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Something Pretty, the podcast. We talk about Deadwood. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file, which has uh, all the shows are part of that. So if you want to support any of these shows, you can go there, patreon.com slash the Penske file, and leave your thoughts there. we got a Discord, too. There's a link down below for all that stuff if you want to join the conversation about it. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? Uh, check out the Rotten Horror Picture Show where Amanda and I talk about horror movies or the Badass Podcast, where Sean Murphy and I talk about Batman the Animated Series. And I have a new comic book out, uh, issue two of Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker is now on the shelves. So if you happen to see that, grab it. And uh, yeah, I think uh, maybe maybe when the whole runs out, we might do a little bit of a giveaway or something mm-hmm. um, and uh, send somebody out a uh, signed set. So probably, only, probably only signed by me, guys. I can't. <laughs> I, I do what I can, but I don't see Sean that often. But he, we'll he will, we'll he see. will, he will write. Shall I exhale out my ass on every on every yeah. issue that you demand? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's it. Thanks, everybody. The next episode is called "Childish Things," and it has one of the great, great quotes of Deadwood. This one, this all the episodes have great quotes, but this has one of the uh, the greatest quotes in it. And uh, to those that doubt me, you suck cock by choice. See ya. <laughs> I won't fuck Chinese. I got a mother living yet. See the jealous type? You can't deny it is off-putting. How them Chinese girls' quivers uh, don't run quite plumb? That's a fucking libel and a myth. They'll never get my dime. Another round, Tom. Or the board. You're past due on three. There are them as due fuck squats. Pathfinders, I call them. I call mine Johnny Roger. Yeah, you ever hear, Tom, the Chinese whore has an ancient way of milking you your sorrow, your loneliness, and that awful feeling of being forsaken? Seems to me I'd leave you with nothing. <laughs>